You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Germany unleashes its leopards and the United States matches the commitment to Ukraine. In arguably related news, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists think we're more doomed than usual. And how many books is too many? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Ivor Gaber will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the UK premiere of one much-nominated Oscar hopeful. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and by Terry Stiasny, the political journalist and author. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Um, You have, as I understand it, both been gallivanting in divergent climes. We'll do the tropical one first, Ivor. Costa Rica, what a wonderful country, and as far as I know, the only significant country without an army. Uh, any we- Icelanders listening? Listening, in fact, please direct your complaints directly <laughs> to Ivor. He has just described your country as insignificant. I'm just repeating what the Costa Rican guy told us, but I will take that. On. I thought it was the sort of Andorras of this world. But anyway, having said that, it does and The seem- Andorans as well. Is there anybody <laughs> you're not going to offend, Ivor? We've just got started, and that's Iceland and Andorra. Um, well, I could start on... No, I won't. Listen, um, <laughs> just to make the point, it is does seem a remarkably stable um, country in a region which is not noted for its stability. How they do it, I know not, but it's a, it's a good experience to visit. Uh, and Terry? Uh, I've been in France. I was skiing. France, I'm pretty sure, has an army. It does. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty sure about that one. Uh, yes, uh, we were lucky we had uh, good enough snow um, because there have been problems in some places with not being enough. Uh, are there any, the limit now appears to be two smallish European countries you would like to dismiss or traduce? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. I could have a, have a go at Liechtenstein for no particular reason. They, 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 they do I'm have sure a, they've, got, they've definitely got castles. They do have an army, Liechtenstein. Yeah, I, I, looked, I, I, would, I yeah. looked it up. It's about 80 people, which yeah. basically means Monocle could take them. <laughs> and, and don't start on the Vatican because they've got Swiss guards. They've got Swiss guards. Right? Well, indeed. Um, we will start, however, with the European country, which most assuredly does have an army, i.e. Germany. Uh, Winston Churchill is popularly alleged to have said, though as is often the case with Churchillisms, almost certainly didn't, that the United States could always be relied on to do the right thing after it had tried everything else. A similar trajectory has been negotiated by Germany over recent weeks, as it has dithered, but eventually delivered, regarding the Leopard 2 tanks requested with increasing urgency by Ukraine. And also, within just the last hour, US President Joe Biden has confirmed that the United States will send 31 of its Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Today's announcement builds on the hard work and commitment from countries around the world, led by the United States of America, to help Ukraine defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. Now, the factors underpinning Germany's reluctance were considered in the most recent edition of The Foreign Desk, which we're going to go ahead and assume all our listeners have already consumed. I mean, you've had four days. But Ivor, what was your read on why Germany faffed around quite so much before making the decision that I think pretty much everyone anticipated they were going to end up making? I think there is a number of reasons. Firstly, 
perhaps most obviously history. I mean, mm. the notion of Panzer divisions rolling into what was the Soviet bloc, countries that I were invaded. They're, they're a bit touchy about referring to them as Panzers, but point taken. Okay, somebody else I've offended. <laughs> <laughs> um, but secondly, the ruling party, the SPD, are split more or less, whereas their coalition partners, the, um, the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, were very keen on this, the SPD, which has a tradition of, of Willy Brandt and so forth, mm-hmm. of Ostpolitik, has been riven by this. And finally, Schultz's own position is not particularly secure, so he was rather reluctant to stick his head above the parapet, but above the parapet he has stuck it, and I think to the relief of most of foreign observers. Um, Terry, the important thing, of course, is that Ukraine will get the tanks, and it now looks like they will get at least 80 Leopard tanks from Germany, Poland, Finland, Spain, Norway, and the Netherlands. Uh, Sweden may also be sending a contingent of its own uh, home-built tank, but there, there is... A, a sort of diplomatic musical chairs going on behind this about who bounced whom into what. Musical chairs, in retrospect, may have been the wrong metaphor, but I think you know what I'm saying. Uh, there's an idea that Germany got bounced into this by Poland saying they would send their leopards anyway, whether Germany liked it or not. And now some suggestion that the United States got bounced into sending its Abrams by Germany deciding <laughs> to send the leopards. Yes, I mean, I think that's one of the suggestions, is that the Germans were kind of holding out until they got assurances from the Americans that they were also going to be sending them as well so that they you know they didn't feel that they were sort of isolated which which they're not obviously because as you say you know Poland have been saying well look we've got these I know we have to ask your permission to to send them on to Ukraine but we're basically going to go ahead and do it you know whether you want us to you know or otherwise come come for us afterwards um and it is interesting that the, you know the, the pressure is going that way that you know it is Poland asking you know Germany to to deliver more of the tanks and that as you say other countries you know around Central Europe are saying look we've got these we've got these ready to go let's just let's just get on and do it and i think you know the germans are also feeling under pressure from their own military i mean they've just changed defense ministers within the last mm-hmm. week or so uh, and they're the, you know the military is using this as an opportunity to say well look if we're giving these to ukraine we need to be able to get some more for our own purposes afterwards what are you going to do about about funding the rest of us uh, either with the abrams in particular it's it's clear reading around this from people who know uh, the machine well that this is not going to be deployed to Ukraine anytime soon. It is a monstrously complicated uh, apparatus. It requires enormous amounts of maintenance, supply chains, expertise, etc. Nevertheless, how important is the symbolism of America saying we're sending our tanks? Yeah, that's the very word I was thinking of. It's symbolic in in two ways. Firstly, it's given Schultz cover, mm. which he needed. I, I mean, maybe he was he got a deal. Um, America was saying, you know, there's n- no linkage. It's not possible. He's got the deal that he wanted that gives him cover. But secondly, it sends a message to um, Putin that up with this we will not put. It's a, Americans have crossed a red line to some extent by sending a weapon, a, an arms, which could be regarded as offensive in pushing back the Russians. So I think, I don't know how long it would take um, the Abrams to become fully functional in Ukraine. They say months, you know, in war situations, these things sometimes happen more quickly. But nonetheless, it was an important, it's an important decision. And it's not, you know, it's two battalions of tanks. That's, you know, not being a military expert, but that sounds to me of some significance. Well, earlier today on the briefing for further insight into Germany's thinking, we spoke to Michael Baranowski as senior fellow and director of the German Marshall Fund's Warsaw office. I don't think that this was a kind of leadership that you expect from a 
Europe's biggest economy, from Europe's largest country by population, because it was leading from behind. Uh, that's actually a German saying that the Chancellor sometimes sticks to. But when it comes to a conflict that is so decisive for the future of Europe and the world security, you can't lead from behind. You have to go to the front. Germany delivered in the end. Um, the Chancellor decided to send the tanks, but it was not leading from the front. It was leading from behind. And uh, so there's still some work to do. Uh, Terry, there is an element here, though, that Germany, I think, is hamstrung two ways. It is hamstrung by its history, as as Ivor was saying, and as our guests on Saturday's Foreign Desk also discussed. But it's also hamstrung, is it not, by its appreciation of the dynamics of the present, as in that for all that Germany has been under pressure these last few weeks to stop faffing, stop dithering, act like a proper European country, act like a proper military power, is Germany still hedging slightly? Because Germany understands that, yeah, OK, that's what you can tell us you want us to do. But how many of you are going to be how happy if Germany really does start acting like a proper military power in, say, the way that France or the United Kingdom does? Uh, yes. And I think, you know, they they almost have to be seen to be some somewhat reluctant because they, I mean, yeah, they haven't, they're not used to the idea of sending troops or, you know, pro proper armory and proper stuff, you know, further out, out of their area. I mean, you, it's interesting to see how far they are actually doing what Ukraine wants. Because, I mean, Ukraine is saying they want up to 200, 300 tanks that they want, you know, this time sensitive as well. So, you know, this faffing is obviously going to affect how Ukraine sees its strategy, what it can do if the Russians want to have uh, an offensive. Um, but yes, the, the, the obvious trade-off for Germany is to start to say, well, look, we want to start directing more of the policy and more of the strategy. If you want our equipment, then you need to get our sort of political input as well. Um, I have a final thought on this one. We were talking earlier about the symbolic importance uh, of America's commitment in particular, but it's, it's symbolic because, as you said, a line has been crossed. Um, does this open up the possibility that further lines might now be crossed? Ukraine has already, for example, um, su suggested that the next step could be sending F-16s. Yeah, well, I think that that raises the whole question of air power. I mean, it must be extremely frustrating for the Ukrainians to have to sit there almost powerless as Russian um, drones bombard um, their infrastructure. And I, I think we're going to be in a situation, not now, but in the next few months, if Ukraine is to succeed in pushing the Rus Russians back to their legitimate borders. Frankly, I can't see them doing it without air power. Well, moving seamlessly along. Today, the members of the Science and Security Board moved the hands of the doomsday clock forward, largely, though not exclusively, because of the mounting dangers in the war in Ukraine. We move the clock forward the closest it has ever been to midnight. It is now 90 seconds to midnight. And a happy new year to you guys as well. Yes, let us now contemplate the deliberations of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who pop up around this time every year to tell us how doomed we all are. This year, excitingly, they have moved their doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight. Imagine your own thunderclap sound effects, which is the closest to the terminal stroke it has ever been positioned. Labouring to conceal their joy at getting out of the lab and being on the news, the dolorous pointy head cited the war in Ukraine, grimly warning that the possibility that the conflict could spin out of anyone's control remains high. Um, Ivor, 
yeah, fine, whatever. Is this really a more dangerous moment than any of the Cold War? Is it really? I was very surprised to hear that clip because in my naivety, I would have assumed that the build-up to the Cuban Missile Crisis um, took us closer to midnight, but clearly I'm not an atomic scientist and what do I know? I, I, I find that surprising, but of course worrying, Um, For the last 11 months, no, it's less than 10 months, Putin has been rattling his nuclear sabre. And we just don't know to what extent he would be in a position, wants to be in a position where he could begin some form of nuclear confrontation. So we are in the dark and the atomic scientists have given us a very stark warning about which there is nothing we can do. Uh, Terry, am I I alone in finding this annual stunt by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists somewhat tedious? I mean, is is there a difference between this and any given lunatic outside a tube station (laughs) wearing a sandwich board, (laughs) clanging a bell and saying the No, I mean, I I kind of agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure they're absolutely excellent atomic scientists. I think they are not (laughs) necessarily... We only have their word for that. Well, I'm I'm assuming that, you know, but I don't think they're very good at politics. I think, um, you know, the idea that we... uh, This is now more dangerous than, say, 1962, uh, as I was saying. You know, they they created this in 1947 when they put it at seven minutes to midnight. You know, obviously it was the the beginning of the Cold War and and they, you know, it's been furthest away in, in 1990 because of the end of the Cold War and they thought this is all going swimmingly but they weren't, aren't really looking at you know the complexities of, of the politics of all of it and they seem to be also trying to add in you know the climate threat as well as the nuclear threat and which just seems a strange mishmash of things that doesn't really you know get get to the bottom of, of what the what the threats actually are. I mean they're bound to be right eventually in fairness <laughs> well, but, but, yeah, but none of us will be here to tell <laughs> you but, 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 so, but Ivor, I mean how are we supposed to react to this other than just by going yeah Righto. Well, um, with all due, not the opposite of humility, it ain't aimed at us, Andrew. With all due respect to eminent journalists in my company, this is aimed at world leaders um, who are supposed to react with with horror and to modify their policies. Do, do we seriously imagine... The same thing, do we, they? Do, but do, do we think that a single world leader is, like, even the world leaders of Andorra, Liechtenstein, and whoever else you are having a go Iceland, at, Iceland. Are, are paying the least amount of attention to these people with their big well, clock? You do remind me of a, a story many moons ago when I was a cub reporter in the West Country covering the Sirencester Trades Council, uh, and they, they, they passed a motion we, 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 saying, sh- we should broadcast live from that for a week. <laughs> Last night, Sirencester... Ancestor Trades Council warned the superpowers that unless. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, uh, if we can try and take their concerns briefly at face value, Terry, uh, are you, for example, more concerned than you were, say, this time last year about you know the, the chances of humankind making it round another lap of the sun? Um, I'm probably actually. Well, probably slightly less concerned because having seen, you know, I suppose this time last year, it was a month till Russia was about to invade Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We were all saying this looks like something really bad is going to happen here. I'm not quite sure, you know, what, ex- you know, what form this is going to take. And people were getting really worried about that. But in the past year, we have seen that Russia has not managed to do so far what it's been, what it's been able to do. And, you know, fingers crossed, I hope that, you know, the likelihood of this coming to a nuclear or as the scientists have been suggesting, 
suggesting some kind of biological conflict is is possibly less likely than it was this time last year. Um, Ivan, you mentioned earlier, you know, Vladimir Putin has unsubtly rattled the nuclear sabre once or twice. Are you meaningfully concerned that that is something that they could do? Or do you assume, as do I, that some fairly brisk communications would have been had behind the scenes between the NATO capitals and Moscow explaining to Russia just the extent to which that would be an incredibly bad idea? No, I'm not quite as sanguine as you because um, I, I, there's a possibility that, that, that um, the NATO powers, even if they're in communication with Putin, are not necessarily in communication with the same and rational individual. Now, I don't know. But I not I, I do think there's a possibility. Maybe we're talking about battlefield nuclear weapons. I'm told by people who know me better, this is a meaningless distinction. Uh, it's an entirely meaningless distinction. But it sounds more comforting, doesn't mm. it? Um, but Putin doesn't have to launch nuclear weapon nuclear strikes on Rome, Paris, London, and New York for it to be a serious issue. So I'm not totally relaxed about it. And these accidents do happen. Well, let's move along to something entirely uh, less terrifying, although still somewhat so for the people directly involved. Uh, One fine day, a daily panel may be called upon to contemplate an enormous coincidental round of media hiring sprees. Today is not that day. Several American media leviathans, including the Washington Post, Vox, Vice and NBC, have braced employees for looming layoffs. We do, of course, have to factor in the tendency of journalists towards existential fretting about the health of their profession, almost certainly dating from 1605, specifically about five minutes after presses rolled in Strasbourg on the first edition of Johann Carolus's weekly newspaper account of all distinguished and commemorable stories. It sounds better in German, but we don't have all night. Terry, does this seem worse than usual? Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't seem worse than usual. Does it just seem usual? It seems seems usual at this point, but I think what is slightly different here is that we're seeing, um, you know, we've seen lots of jobs go in kind of slightly older media, and this seems to be more jobs going in newer media. And I think it's probably got more in common with all the big tech industry layoffs that we've seen, again, over the last few weeks, like people losing jobs at at Google and at Amazon, and people are finding that they don't need as many people um, to do even the jobs in in new media that they thought they did. Or, in the case of Twitter, to discover that they needed actually exactly that many (laughs) people. people, And they've uh, lost 5,000 of them, To to run the organisation. I mean, either drawing upon your your long experience of and profound learning... uh, of the journalistic uh, trade. I, I, for one, am slightly affronted by the failure to observe tradition here because it is customary, is it not, to sack everybody just before Christmas? (laughs) Oh, the Americans have got no sense of tradition. Um, That's another country I've offended. Um, I'm slightly surprised, um, but I've come to a conclusion. I mean, firstly, they've bundled all these together, but you know, Google and well, Amazon does something very different, and Microsoft do something very mm. different from what the media companies do. Um, there was the assumption that uh, n- news information will transfer within a few years from traditional media to new media. The problem seems to me that we, and I use that word generally, have got so used to use for f- news for free 
the Google, the Apple News, Google News, etc., that um, it's become increasingly difficult to persuade consumers to pay for it, even on you know online or offline, and that does seem to me to be a significant, a, a potentially worrying development. If nobody's going to pay for news, it won't happen. And yet, Terry, the news media does always seem, at least so far, Touchwood, to find a way. I think, yeah, I think one of the interesting things at the moment is that people may be less willing to subscribe to you know the the brand name you know media product but people seem to be at the moment kind of quite willing to subscribe to individual journalists so so many people setting up i don't know who makes money out of their substack i'm assuming lots of people do you you sort of you subscribe to one person's view one person's opinion or or one person's reporting so you kind of people accumulate a selection rather than having an editor decide for them who who you want to read but i don't know if that is only journalists reading other journalists work so people (laughs) setting up podcasts and substacks and getting lots of listeners but you know that is it's kind of uh, spreading out a bit but it's not news um, Dominic Cummings's opinions, or whoever else you're reading on Substack, Substack does not amount to news. Some of it makes news when he tells me when he, tells, when he gives but you the gossip. Of gathering it. news, as you well know, is an expensive mm. business, and it does concern me that um, I, a few years ago there was shock horror, but it's now real about the notion of. Um, it was called robotic journalism. Sports reports were being mm. put together by AI. Um, I'm not aware how far that development has gone in the States. It didn't, hasn't really worked here. But certainly the notion that AI could actually replace m- the majority or many living journalists is perhaps a sign of the times given these redundancies. I do often wonder, though, Terry, if a lot of the old model of journalism basically functioned uh, via what you just described, i.e. journalists reading other journalists, (laughs) or people who wanted to be journalists reading other journalists, because this is, I think, the one great terrifying discovery of the modern model now that it was possible for, once it became rather possible for every newspaper to discover exactly how many people were reading every individual article, they discovered that those incredibly difficult, expensive and dangerous, um, complicated uh, and meaningful investigative investigative reports or foreign correspondent pieces were a minority pursuit, whereas sort of videos of skateboarding ducks and hot take opinion pieces, which cost nothing, um, yeah, that got, that got all the views. Yeah, so I suppose the, the difference before, you know, when you had people had the paper round and everybody got your newspaper delivered was that you couldn't tell what, you know, they might just have been getting it every day for the crossword but they had to pay for the whole thing in order to get the crossword so you know that's maybe maybe too much knowledge is a bad thing i mean are are you again drawing upon your current expertise and long experience either are you basically optimistic though about journalism no (laughs) next question no i'm 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 not it's difficult to see um how people will be persuaded to pay for news um, when they're increasingly finding all sorts of news sources that they don't have to pay for. Now, I don't want to talk about youth and the young generation, but when I say to my students, when I bring into the class a newspaper, they look at me and say, what's that? (laughs) Not quite, but I have not yet in the last few years encountered a single student who buys a newspaper. Some of them look at them online, but... Um, and so, as do I, but there is no substitute, actually, and this is me sounding like Professor Fogey, of flicking through a newspaper and one's eye falling on something that you would have not even encountered had you been online. But, you know, that's dead. That's dead. It's not going to happen. But I don't, I am not optimistic about the long-term future of news produced by human beings. And Terry? 
Um, I think, yeah, news produced by human beings, I think I'm reasonably optimistic about that. Yeah, physical newspapers and things, not so much. Uh, I think people will still want to know what's going on elsewhere in the world. It's the que- And actually, because the sort of the barriers to entry are so much lower now, I mean, you've got to sort out the quality issues of what people produce and what's good and what's not and what's trustworthy and what's not. But I think that will find a way through. Uh- one of the issues that worries me is, is, is to use a posh word, provenance. When I buy my Guardian or Daily Telegraph, I know who's publishing it. I know where they're coming from. The problem always online, and let's not get into a big fake news discussion, but as we don't know provenance, you know, news app and, and a whole range of news sources. We don't really know. It could, it could be the moon is, it, 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 it could be believers in lizards. Are they the same thing? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, that is the real problem. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm slightly gloomy. Well, sticking with the printed word to Germany, where it emerges that a retired mining engineer had been living the dream and or the nightmare could go either way of any bibliophile. Bruno Schroeder, who died at the age of 88, had whiled away his later years amassing a library of some 70,000 books filed in beautiful custom-built shelves, including some which lined the slanted eaves of his attic. This story is inserted here by way of allowing the panel to, according to inclination, strike noble posers venerating the book as some sort of holy artefact or come over all iconoclastic and breezily announce that they fling them gaily into the recycling after reading um i I did want to start by uh, let's let's sketch out some numbers i'm i was trying to think of how many books are in my house it would run comfortably into the hundreds i suspect i might just about clear four figures terry uh, I did spend some of my afternoon trying to do this as well. <laughs> trying to calculate roughly if there's 20 books on that shelf. Um, I think I'm probably certainly well over a thousand and putting books together that are in various places around the place, uh, possibly a couple of that, possibly a couple of thousand. Ivor? Well, I can't claim to, to have such large numbers because my partner has a very strict rule, one in, one out. Ah, which is a real battle. <laughs> Have you said this to your partner? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think they're a very attractive decoration. And when I walk into a friend or family's house and see no books, I do worry a little bit. I think they are a sign of civilization, culture, I well, don't know what. This, this does raise the question, Terry, of, of why we keep them, because there are a lot of books among my own collection, which I'm sure I have... I've read pretty much all of them, I think. I'm pretty good like that. But there's lots I've never read again, and obviously never will. Um, And the same mathematically must be true for you. There's just not enough time in the, you know... Obviously, I'm wishing you a long and happy life, but nonetheless, you've got other things to do. So why do we keep them? It's funny. I think I'm much more sentimental about my old books than I am about new books. So when I go through and sort of sort them out and decide which ones might go to the charity shop or which ones you know, might go to the, you know, be given away, which I do occasionally do. A, a recent novel, something that I've read and not enjoyed, can go on the outpile. But whereas something that I read when I was 17 or 18 and has got an old airline ticket stuck in it from somewhere, I mean, that is never leaving my house because it's got memories attached to it. And it's, you know, one of those sort of formative kinds of kinds of books. But I do find I come back to things that I didn't expect to, um, like for, for research or for reading or, you know, when you just suddenly think, why haven't I read that book in years? And you kind of go and burrow about and find it. See, but that, that right there is, is, is the justification journalists give 
forgive themselves for not getting rid of books. It's like, oh, well, I, 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 might I, need I, it I, I, I might need that. I might have to look something up. Well, um, I speak as somebody of, of far less integrity than you two, because I have a sort of two-stage process. I read about a book, I hear about a book, and I buy it. So I feel I'm halfway there. Mm. And the fact that it's sitting on my shelf and available to me should I want it somehow makes me feel less guilty than not buying it at all. And it does mean occasionally, and I speak after my recent trip, I wanted books to read on the plane. There were two books, refreshingly unread, that I thought, oh, yes, now is the chance to read them. So I do feel the act of buying them play, pays tribute to the author and the publishing company, and maybe eventually I'll get round to reading them. I have read most of my books, but not all of them. I mean, uh, sorry. Have either of you got on with the Kindle or equivalent digital reader and thought of just, I could get rid of all this stuff and have it all on this thing that fits in my pocket? Uh, I have tri- I've tried reading books on Kindle, but I find, I find I don't, they don't register as well. I yeah. don't remember what I've read. I can read a whole book in a couple of hours and go, I've completely forgotten what that book was about. Um, as an academic, it's a, there's a real issue here. Forgive me for indulging myself. But the great advantage, I, I, I agree with you, that you, you do concentrate more on books and a little more, but the great advantage of a Kindle as for a researcher is you can not only word search. You know, indexes are pretty threadbare things. You can word search specific things and find, but you can also link. I want to see, and I'll give you an exact example and I'll be brief, and Alistair Campbell's diaries, five, six volumes. I wanted to search how often the words Tony Blair and Rupert Murdoch appeared together. Mm. And I can do that on Kindle and it will take me a lifetime to do it on print books. So there's a dilemma there. But, I mean, that, but that's, I mean, I, I find myself, that's the difference between, yeah, I, I read acres of stuff on screen for work, but I can't imagine ever doing that for pleasure. No, it's, 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 it's fine for a book that you don't mind that you're going to forget. I find like a sort of holiday, you know, beach book kind of thing that you can just you know flick through and go oh that was mildly entertaining while i was on a plane or something but you know for something that you want to remember reading should we have rules though for managing uh the horde because it it, it can well obviously it consumes a great deal of space um ivy you mentioned that you you've had a one-in-one-out regime imposed upon you see for me i i've had days where i've thought right this is ridiculous there's too many i'm going to have a thoroughgoing purge i'm going to consider every damn volume in this house on its own merits i spend an entire day doing that i get i like five end up in the out heap and, and you sit I, on the floor reading half of them well, yeah, I, 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 I look at these five books i actually end up thinking ah mm, and not end up keeping three of them and so i an entire day's work goes into getting rid of two paperbacks and then you decide to make some more bookshelves anyway, well, exactly <laughs> but the problem is distressingly is there's very little market for second-hand books. Most, second-hand, most books get pulped, even those in charity shops that are not saleable, that it's a dead product now. Uh, maybe it gets recycled. I Also, academically, we were at one stage, I was involved in a scheme sending academic books to the library, academic libraries in the Global South. And at a po- one point, they say, look, stop it, please, because you're, <laughs> you're sending us books published 1980. <laughs> That's if they no hang use. around for long enough, you get a lovely old, you know, Penguin edition, a sort of Penguin classic or something like that. And then you want to buy it again, even though you probably already got it because you found a really nice old edition. Well, you t- uh, academics need or researchers need up to date books. But in general, you need the old books, too. You need the old books. Too. <sighs> Not really. Not really. <laughs> you, do, you do. You do. Well, on that 
disputatious conclusion. Uh, Terry Stiasny and Ivor Gaber, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally on tonight's show, what does it take to play an orchestra conductor? As it turns out, you don't just flail your arms around and hope for the best. Skill, method, timing, even diplomacy are key aspects of the art form, or indeed pretending to be enacting the art form. And it is an art form, one that Kate Blanchett attempts to embody in her latest film, Tar, which scored six nominations in this year's Oscars. Monocle's Laura Kramer stopped by Tar's UK premiere to hear how Blanchett prepared for the role and why it has proven to be a controversial part. The narrative around Tar has been complicated. The film follows a high-achieving maestro who unravels as she is accused of misconduct. And Kate is the toast of Tinseltown for her performance, picking up the Venice Film Festival, Golden Globe, and Critics' Choice Awards for Best Actress. And now she's a frontrunner in the Oscars race. If she wins, it'll be her third acting Academy Award. The illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it. Or The reality is I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. But the choice to have a woman as the alleged perpetrator is a move that's been criticized, but director Todd Fields says he wanted to highlight power imbalances and inequality in classical music. And speaking on the red carpet, he told me he consulted dozens of female musicians to talk about their experiences. Well, we had Natalie Marie Beale. She was our conducting consultant. Of course, she teaches at the Royal College, and she uh, was mentored by Esapekka Solomon. Uh, we had her throughout the production. We interviewed maybe 40 players that were all female players, and the first question I asked them was, how was it different for you? Or do you believe it was different for you than your male counterparts? And of course, they all laughed in my face. Of course it was different. You know, when I asked them, would you mind sharing some of the obstacles you faced as opposed to being a man? This one player, she was a violist, she said to me, um, this was a, a younger player. She said, I came up and my first chair position was with Munich, and I was the first female violist in their entire history. Now this is 18 months ago, she tells me this story. So, you know, there's a giant obvious disparity in this, you know, in this milieu um, that's slowly, glacially uh, moving forward, but very slowly, very slowly. And um, it's, it's head-scratching. It's something that, that I think from the outside, if you, if you haven't been involved with classical music, that you would never suspect. You would just assume that there was more equality, and, and of course, there isn't. I think the opportunities, when you look at the big five orchestras in the States, we still have not had one female conductor at a big five orchestra. We still have yet to have a female conduct a major German orchestra. That should change. Conducting is an art in itself. How did you work with Kate in order to get her to embody that, and what sort of work does she put in to, to make that look so well, in natural of, to her? In terms of the conducting, it was really that dance was really Kate and Natalie Murray Beale. And they, she worked for a year before we started rehearsal. Uh, she was on two other films, and of course, everything was locked down then. We couldn't see each other. So, you know, it was all done initially via Zoom, and then it was done later in Berlin you know, in front of a full mirror and, you know, with an accompanist. Um, we had very little time with an orchestra because, of course, it's a luxury to, to be able to, to rehearse with, a, with an orchestra. That part of, uh, of the film is really a testament to the two of them. And I wouldn't even attempt to pretend to know how to, to instruct someone on a podium. Her castmates were equally impressed with the work Kate put in. 
German actress Nina Haas, who plays Sharon in the film, told me she has a newfound respect for concert masters. Basically, you're the diplomat, you're the politician of the orchestra. And you have to find a special way of talking with each and every single musician in the orchestra. And that demands so much more than just being an amazing musician. Tar marks the acting debut of the British-German cellist Sophie Kauer, who plays Olga. And speaking at the premiere, she told me it's ultimately a love letter to classical music. I feel like there's a tendency in popular culture to think that classical music is really inaccessible or kind of frivolous or not something that people do. But this film does the opposite. It shows it as this kind of really beautiful, glorious thing that, you know, can move people. And that's the whole point, really. It's the same as acting, you know, the whole the goal is to move people and transport them and make them feel things. And so Todd had thought through every character so thoroughly. So he would sit me down before we were about to film and be like, right, so I want you to take time on that shift there or play that that tempo. Obviously I hadn't practiced it like that. So for me doing a live take and recording it and, and knowing that it was going to be in the film with no post-production work on it, I was a bit like, oh my goodness me. But I feel like it was a really, really good kind of baptism of fire. And I learned how to be very professional in very difficult situations very early on. It, I just still can't believe that all these wonderful opportunities are coming my way. It's just so, so surreal. And I'm just trying to, you know, enjoy every minute of it. And there may be more good news for the cast and crew to celebrate. The Academy Awards are just six weeks away. Laura Kramer reporting there, and that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Terry Stiasny and Ivor Gaber. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard and Laura Kramer. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.